used to having the over your mic. Y'all have a seat this morning. I know we normally stand up for the reading, but uh, I got a couple of things just to say. Um, don't let the truck and normally wearing the boots, uh, I don't know, disguise something or fool you. I, uh, I do those things, but I'm actually not a country western music fan. It's not that I dislike it. It's that I didn't grow up in a household that really listened to it all that much. So Sawyer and I got uh, free tickets last night to be able to go to the Blake Shelton concert, which uh, all of you who actually like country music should be very jealous and angry about because it was great. But one of the things that I felt like he did best was that uh, he did this really long concert, but he uh, brought in these really big other names, Trace Atkins and others, uh, to sing two song like couplets like in the midst of this longer concert and uh, what I felt like it really did was it like broke it up in a way that was like uh, more cohesive and even uh, better it was more enriched by having more voices Uh, if you ever get the chance to go down to uh, Texas Day Brazil uh, in between all of the different cuts of meat they have these like little tiny like uh, uh, bananas and the bananas are worth the price of admission but that's not the actual meal it's the thing that kind of breaks that up and, and provides like a new taste for the palate and everything else. One of the things that we've been doing over the last little season um, has been to actually bring other pastors in to preach. And so uh, Ryan McCarthy, who's here this morning uh, to preach, is a good friend, longtime friend. Uh, He's a biblical counselor, a pastor at uh, Soul Care over at Christ Chapel. Many of you know uh, him and are aware not just of the ministry through Soul Care, but uh, God's ministry through him. And we're super excited about having him this morning. I think it's going to be more enriching. Uh, Over the uh, next month, we're actually going to have Dave Bruscus, who's one of the uh, uh, pastors within Acts 29. He's actually the regional leader of Acts 29. He's a guy that oversees uh, our church in some ways. He's going to be coming in in this next month as well. But um, I wanted to give thanks for Ryan and for his time uh, before he even comes up, uh, just because uh, for uh, Sawyer and I personally, and I think I can say this for Andrew and Whitley also, uh, just with the last couple of weeks and everything, this has just been God's providential timing that he was able to kind of flex and move into this week and so I want for you guys to just know that we have a lot of confidence in him and a lot of gratefulness towards God for allowing him to come this morning. Uh, Now I'm going to read from Galatians chapter 3. If you would uh, join with me there uh, whether digitally or in a copy of scriptures I want for you to read these words along with me so that we can be attending God's word together. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, does he who supplies the spirit to you and the works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? This is the word of the Lord. How are you guys doing? Good, good. Andrew, where are you? Here you are. Thank you for convicting me with your examples of impatience. That was, I really don't struggle with that. And then you get specific and I realize, oh, 
I do. You're the, uh, getting impatient with your kids who are being impatient? Thank you. <clears throat> okay, so I'm going to just be very transparent with this. I, uh, I have a Facebook account. I don't check it. I don't really use it, but I'm just not really proud to say, oh, I've got a Facebook account, but I've got a Facebook illustration to open up with. I, w- I, w- I was a college pastor. I- were you in the college ministry when I was there, or do we overlap? We were just at Christ Chapel for a long time. Okay. Yeah, that's right. <clears throat> so I've got a lot of Facebook friends, mainly due to just all these students coming through, and I was like the either a high school intern or a college pastor, and so I've got this large database of people who I'm friends with, but I don't really necessarily keep in contact with. But my what I get is every day I get an email from Facebook saying whose birthday it is. And then I also use Facebook for as a book of faces, you know, like uh, someone will send me an email like, do I know that person? And I'll go in there and, and I might find that like, yeah, I used to be roommates with him or <laughs> um, usually it's like, yeah, okay, I recognize or we have these same people in common or whatever. But uh, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll, I'll use it often to go on and just say happy birthday to somebody and often walk away really discouraged because these people who used to, I, I, I've known, and it, maybe it's been 10, 15 years since I interacted with them, I'll go onto their account and see something posted that is like, what happened? Like, are you even a believer? Like, what, what's on the, their account is very discouraging just as I pass by and see what, see what they're associating with or what they're identifying with. And I'd say social media is discouraging to me for many reasons. One, people often publicly broadcast their spiritual condition uh, through their posts and through their likes and stuff. And, and it's, it's often just disheartening, right? I don't know if any of you are in the same boat with that. But I, I think what seems like something along the way must have crept into the minds, hearts, and lives of, of many Christians and just pulled them away from a faithful walk with him. I think Paul probably felt the same way about the Galatians as he checked their Facebook accounts. And I know, they didn't have Facebook. But he had news of what was going on in the lives of the Galatians, and what he saw was disheartening to them, to, to, to Paul, to say the least. And I would wonder what would Paul think if he checked our Facebook accounts. I'll leave this Facebook thing behind soon. But, I mean, are we immune to the same drifting away or falling away that we see other people, you know, falling to? I think sincere, doctrinally sound Christians face a creeping threat to their faith. It's in what Paul is addressing for the Galatians might be the most subtle, most enticing, creeping robber, you know? And in this particular threat really attacks people who want to be faithful to God. Those people in particular. So this, this threat robs believers of life, joy, and of freedom. And it's the threat that's around us. It's likely it's in us, actually. So I'm, I'm talking about the threat of moralism. It's a problem. Moralism is a problem of embracing a different gospel. This is one of many threats, I'm going to say. It's not the only one, but it especially traps those who want to be faithful. And Paul's going to expose it. Ultimately, he's going to show us how to destroy it. So yeah, it's in Galatians chapter 3. And, you know, and 
uh, what's it, Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, uh, where Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I feel like Jesus is saying through Paul in Galatians, come back to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden from embracing a different gospel, and I will give you rest. I would, that's what Galatians is, he's speaking to people, not who are, who have no association with God, but have actually tasted and experienced rest in Christ from just, you know, giving it to him. But over time, as they're walking with Christ, find that this is actually exhausting. This is not joy-filled, life-giving walk with you, Lord. It's kind of a, it's just wearisome. And he's saying through Galatians 3, come back to me. Because this is evidence you've embraced a different gospel. And, and from where you've been, Galatians 1 and 2, um, Paul has been defending the divine origin of his apostolic message. Because the Galatians have embraced a different gospel, so much so that they're attacking Paul for his message and for what he was bringing. So Paul was defending, theologically defending his message, his mission in 1 and 2. He was on a personal defense. But here in Galatians 3, he's now ready to lay into the Galatians with a theological offense. So he moves from defense to offense. And so he's going to open up a can. He's not happy. I'm going to read it one more time uh, because Chris, you, didn't, he, you just did an utterly insufficient job. I'm kidding. No, you, I just want to read it again for my sake, actually. Paul says, Oh, foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Or are you so foolish Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And I recognize, by the way, that the question mark is at the end of verse 6. I I actually think it belongs at the end of verse 5, but Paul's not happy. He's in full interrogation mode because he asks six questions I think in six verses or five verses and it's just one after the other have you ever gotten that interrogation from your spouse on something no because you <laughs> I have you know what were you thinking what, what were you, why would you do that and and he he at one point says I just want to ask one thing of you and then he asks like four questions in a row so he's, he's, not, he's not happy, and he starts off by saying, oh, foolish Galatians, like, means like mindless. He, I think you could faithfully say, you morons. Galatians, you morons. Like, who's bewitched you? Because Paul, by the way, if you remember chapter 2, he was talking about Peter, and Peter had been bewitched. He'd been drawn away, and he was being foolish. And so he says now in Galatians 3, so who's bewitched you? Who's cast a spell on you? The N-E-T has it that way. Are are you possessed? Were you drunk, guys? I mean, are you on drugs? And by the way, I think it's interesting. Who is singular? So it's not like a group of people. Who is, it's one, it's one person, one entity who's, who's bewitched you. Who has deceived you? It's talking about the great deceiver here. Diabolos. Uh, he's the father of lies in John chapter 8. Satan is the one who is doing the deceiving here. 
And he's the one who, and, and it's at Matthew chapter 13 where the parable of the sower, he throws the seeds out and some lands on the rock, on the path. And the, the, the path is, you know, hard packed so the seeds are on the top. Who takes away the seed in that case? It's these birds come and take away the seed, right? And then Jesus interprets it and says, it, it, some people hear the word and then Satan comes and takes away the seed or the gospel. So, was, and I think a lot of people will say, have you heard someone say, I went to this church, but they didn't preach the gospel and now I just heard this. Some, I think a lot of times people hear the gospel many times. It's just that the enemy doesn't want us to remember or to, to, to hold on to that and if he's going to attack our faith, he's going to go for the jugular, which is the gospel. He's going to deceive us at the level of understanding, whether it's distorting our understanding of the gospel or causing us just to simply forget it or take it for granted. And what so Paul is, is opening up. He's not happy. And he says, well, he's astonished. He says, I'm, I'm astonished. Why is he so astonished that that this is happening. And the answer is in the next phrase of verse one. He says, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Publicly portrayed, uh, vividly displayed on the cross for all, the, for all to see. So let me ask you guys, did the Galatians see Jesus crucified? Mm -mm. I mean, there might have been a one or two people there, but this is a, largely a Gentile church, and I can't, I, I mean, they, they probably as a, as, a, as a group didn't make their way to Jerusalem around that time to see Jesus crucified. Uh, Paul also says in verses 2 and 5 that, did you, did you uh, get this by doing works of the law or by hearing with faith? And, and he says it again, by hearing with faith. He's, he's, he's talking about something other than actually literally seeing Jesus crucified. But he says, it was before your eyes that Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. Um, what's he talking about? Paul's talking about his preaching that they saw. That they, they, they got it so much that they saw it with the eyes of their heart. When, whenever... whenever um, there's a lot of places where scripture uses sensory language to portray the movement from here down to here. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Anybody here literally tasted the Lord? No. Anybody literally seen the Lord? You might get some weird looks if you say yes. All right. Um, Paul says in uh, Ephesians chapter 1, he prays that the eyes of our heart might be opened to see. <clears throat> that's a reference to getting it here. First Thessalonians, th Thessalonians 1, 4 and 5 says, For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Now, this is all talking about the same thing as you heard this preaching and it's like, Boom, it, you got it. You saw this with full conviction. And so I would just, I want to make this important point. A Christian is not just someone who knows about Jesus Christ, who can articulate what the gospel means, but is someone who has seen him personally and what it means that he died for, that Jesus died for me. And Paul is astonished because he's talking to a church that got it. They, uh, they experienced the truth of the gospel personally. John Stott, by the way, he points out that the word crucified is in the perfect tense, 
meaning it is it, once it happens it's it's once it happens it it's uh benefits were ongoing sort of like turning on a light switch you turn on a light switch that's a one-time event but then the effects of that light are now present and ongoing so in other words christ's work on the cross was completed and the benefits are forever fresh valid and available so paul is saying you got it then and what you got is still now it should be as true now as it was for you then so he says, let me ask you only this. And, and followed by five questions. I've got one question for you. Where were you? Who were you with? What were you doing? What were you thinking? Like, that's, I think he lets us in into the fact that Paul is mad. He's really upset. Now let, let me just address this as an aside, but I think it's relevant. Uh, is it okay for Paul to be angry so much that he's calling them foolish? And I think later he talks about having uh, a certain part of their body cut off, right? When he's talking about circumcision. I mean, Paul's like, you know what I'm talking about, right? I don't need to elaborate with kids in the room. Paul's PO'd. Is it okay? Is, is this like, is he in sin in the way he's angry? Is he out of control? What is anger? How would you define anger? I'd say anger is a response to a perceived wrong, right? It's love moved to action. So it's probably a weird way to think of anger, but it's all, it, there's, if someone is ang angry, there's always something loved that's in view, right? And it's moved to, action, moved to action because what is love loved is under threat. So you could think of anger as an offensive defense. You want to pulverize whatever it is that is threatening what you love. If you, I don't know if you've thought about it this way, but so sometimes it's actually, it's a sin not to be angry. Because if you are not angry when you see something that is genuinely like good that you should love being threatened, if, you don't, if that doesn't make you angry, there's something wrong with your lack of anger. So if, I, if someone's flirting with, with my wife and I don't care, there's a problem, right? If someone's trying to sell drugs to my kids and I just stand around, like, I should get angry. I, I think sometimes one of the arguments that I will get in at, at home is I, I, I come home and the kids do something disrespectful and I'm thinking about work or I'm just kind of not really present. And if my kids disrespect my wife and I'm not paying attention, I don't get appropriately angry, who's angry now? My wife's angry with me, right? And rightfully so. And I think, I didn't do anything wrong. That's the problem. You didn't do anything. You need to crush the children. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Just joking. Um, Winston Churchill said, a man is about as big as the things that make him angry. So Paul is appropriately angry because there's a threat that will destroy people he loves. And if he doesn't get angry, it means he doesn't love the Galatians. So we... And we don't see God getting equally angry at all the different, the different sins, right? When you just watch Jesus, when he's interacting with people, what made Jesus the most angry? Self-righteousness, what did you say? Sin, yes. And particular sins, kind of, they don't show up equally as to make him angry. I think one of the things that made him angriest was self-righteousness 
legalism and moralism. And then you see him hanging out with the drunkards and the prostitutes. And I'm sure he wasn't condoning their sin. But it was one of those things where this, there's something, uh, there's a threat here that is particularly dangerous. And it was upsetting to Jesus and it's upsetting to Paul. And so when he says, let me ask you only this, he says, did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Okay, he's going to take us back. And he says, did you receive the Spirit? That is a reference to the moment you became Christians. And you were just mentioning this a second ago. You mentioned baptism is synonymous with conversion. Is that right? I I just spent a a good number. I I had to write a long 40-page paper on this, all right, Uh, about baptism. And it is. It's synonymous with conversion. It's synonymous with receiving the Spirit. Confession, baptism, conversion, faith, repentance, they're all, speak, they're, all, they're all synonyms speaking about the same moment, basically, of coming to faith in Jesus. And so Paul could have easily said, did you become a Christian by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Think back to the time you became believers. How did it begin for you? Were you trying really hard to do something pleasing to God or did you just simply hear something And the NIV says it this way, did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Hearing hearing what with faith? Believing what? Did you believe in something that you did or did you believe in something that Christ did? I think of those WWJD bracelets. Does anybody have one on? I'm not the biggest fan because it seems to be like you know what would Jesus do as as if you could do it I really want to make like a WJD bracelet which like what Jesus did or WDJD which doesn't roll off the tongue what did Jesus do you can come up with some better ones I'm sure but the focus is what did Jesus do that is the heart of the gospel and and if you so just do this with me think back to the moment you became a Christian some of you might not be able to remember that. Maybe you were really young, or it happened maybe a slower fade. But if you remember the moment you became a Christian, um, did you become a Christian because you were in a season where you were trying really hard to be faithful? You were reading your Bible and you started to kind of, you know, find some victory over certain sins. You make, I'm making it, I'm getting there, and you come to faith. Anybody? I was a little nervous. What would I do if someone raised their hand? (laughs) I think for most people, it's you come to a realization like, I can't do this. I cannot be good enough. I need some good news apart from myself. You know, the, the gospel, I think this is a good definition of the gospel. The gospel is good news for bad people. It was then, it is now. It's not good advice like what you need to do. It's, it's, it's the good news of what Jesus did. It's not good news for good people or for people who are trying really hard or for people who are starting to get it right. Faith requires no virtue. It really requires the collapse of virtue. Where you, you're at the end of yourself. You've got nothing. You need Jesus. Thomas Watson said, until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. It's a great, beautiful, true quote. You come to the place of realizing the bitterness of the sin that you cannot deal with, and Christ dealt with it for you. And Paul reminded the Galatians of what happens when they became Christians in verses 1 and 2, but now he's going to show them that 
the rules didn't change the moment they got into the club, the moment they got into the door. Verses three through five, he's going to say, you became a Christian this way. This is what it's going to look like when you grow. And he says, verse three, are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Are, are you changing the rules? It would be like playing soccer and you start off playing really well and you decide, I'm going to pick up the ball and run it in for a goal, right? That, that would be foolish. That would be changing the rules and disqualifying the whole thing. Paul moves, and if you look, and if you're paying attention to the tense, Paul moves from the, from the past tense and now he's speaking in the present tense and he asks this question, are you now being perfected by the flesh? You began this way by faith. Are you now being perfected? The NIV says, are you going to attain your goal? They're, they're all different ways of saying, are you, you going to be completed in your walk by effort, by, by, by flesh? We are all right now striving to complete ourselves, right? We all have a project that we're working on, certain things that we're like, you know, hey, my life is going well, but I would like to be able to do a little better over here. And, and we, we put weight, I mean, we might be doing a number of these things simultaneously, right? I would like to lose a few more pounds because even as I'm standing right, right now, I'm sucking in my gut a little, all right? So I need to lose a few more pounds. I would like to be able to, my prayer time is kind of weak, and I'd like to be able to concentrate more with that when I'm working, I'm working, and when I'm resting, I'm resting. I, I see some areas in my life I want to complete myself. And I think that's good because you recognize areas that you want to grow. But the thing is, is when I try to go about those forms of growth, I, I sometimes believe that if I get there or if I get a promotion or something like that, if I get there, I'm going to be able to have this cosmic exhale because I've arrived. And the other thing is, I believe that I can do it, that I can, I can exercise a little more discipline or a little more, um, I don't know, just drum up a little more godliness. And if I've got some sort of sinful habit, I recently deleted a golf game on my phone because I realized like total escapism behavior. And when my kids start commenting on that and they don't get games on their phone, or they don't have phones, but... Um, you start to see like, okay, I've got these issues. I want to be completed. But the thing is, what am I relying on? What am I, and I'm hoping you're asking yourself the same question. Like what, what do you see yourself as needing to be completed in? And then will that actually complete you? And how are you going to get there? Well, the essence of moralism is, moralism is believing that you can complete yourself by obeying God's law. A little better, doing a little more. Richard Lovelace said it this way, many have a theoretical commitment to the doctrine of justification by faith, but in their day-to-day -day ex existence, they rely on their sanctification for their justification. Does that make sense? Like, I rely on how good I'm being, how much I'm growing to feel a sense that I'm God's. He accepts me. So we draw our assurance of acceptance with God from our sincerity, our past experience of conversion, our recent religious performance, or the relative infrequency of our conscious willful disobedience. Does that resonate with anybody? We have these little ways of evaluating ourselves, and it's that, hey, now that I'm a believer, if I'm good enough, then I can know I'm good. I'm okay. And Paul is saying that, verse 4, that's like, 
That's like picking up the soccer ball. Now, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? I think of chapter 2, verse 21, you preached on this, where do I, I, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for nothing. And here in the present tense, he says, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? How does God work in you now? If you start to establish the law, you are abolishing the gospel. It'd be like this. You probably heard something, an illustration like this. When you place your faith in Christ, it would be like trying to swim across the Pacific Ocean to Hawaii, right? If you, if you try to do that by the law, by, it's relying on the law is like trying to swim across the ocean. You can't do it. So you could either trust in your ability to swim or you can trust in a pilot and you get on the plane and you entirely trust that pilot, right? Do you halfway through that plane ride decide you're going to start swimming? You're in trouble if you do that. And Paul is saying, you can't switch here. We are always facing a real temptation to shift our trust and our reliance from God back to ourselves. And any effort to take away the idea of, um, of, of Christ's doing it for us, his substitutionary atonement, and replacing it with moralism robs the gospel of its power to change us from the inside out. And what ends up happening is we end up looking ugly. We end up feeling like it's, it's up to us. We feel stressed. We feel either proud of ourselves if we're doing a relatively good job of obeying the law. We always compromise the law and make it attainable. So if, if it's something like, let's just say alcoholism. You, you struggle with, with, with drinking and just escaping to alcohol. What an alcoholic might do is saying, what holiness looks like is not getting drunk, not, not drinking. Okay, well, that's true. You don't get drunk, but that's, that's an attainable thing. And if that's all you focus on, you're not focusing on the whole of God's law. You're making it attainable. And you might continue to be a self-centered, selfish jerk, but you're sober. Be called a sober drunk. And that becomes, it's just simply attainable. You're not really living, you're not really swimming to Hawaii, if you will. Or we do so in a way that we're proud of ourselves and we become holier than thou and condescending or we try and we fail and we give up. Those are your options when you rely on the law. We all are regularly tempted to slip back into moralism or legalism. I repeatedly re default to it. So what, I'm gonna wanna, what I want to do is make this visual and hopefully memorable. I'm ripping this illustration off from a great Bible study called The Gospel-Centered Life. Um, if you're not familiar... I recommend it. So this is what happens when you, um, let me do this in case it's not needed. When you first become a Christian, you, you hear the, you kind of get the truth that God is holy and I'm not. And I'm, you know, so you see that there's a need for salvation and then someone tells you about Jesus and you trust in him and look at this. There we go. Um, you hear this news of God's grace and so the Holy Spirit convicts you of, I think of uh, John chapter 16, where the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Apart from him, I'm in trouble, apart from, from, from God's grace. And so you trust in Jesus, you hear the gospel, and you transfer your trust from 
yourself to, to him, and God begins his regenerating work, his spirit works in our lives, transform, transforms us. Now, the, the, the idea is, I'm going to obey God's law and become more holy and, and more pleasing to him. But what, what actually happens when, if, if that were the way it looked, is you would end up needing grace less. So next slide. Right? So the cross would get smaller. And that's what the Pharisees did, essentially. They, were, they, didn't, need much of, they didn't need to be forgiven of much. So they, they can cast judgment on other people. Because, yeah, what's, what's the big deal? I mean, yeah, of course God gave me some grace and all, but I'm good. And so to the extent that we perceive ourselves to be effectively obeying the law, we're going to be holier than thou. Our need for grace and our need for Jesus will shrink. And we either... Um, this is just not attractive. Okay, but what actually happens when you grow in Christ is this. You get to know God's word. Go ahead and go to the next slide. You get to know God and you discover he's more holy than you thought. You, you read passages like Matthew 5 is an easy one. Um, you've heard it said, do, do not be angry with your brother. I mean, do not murder. And then Jesus says, but I, I tell you, if you're angry with your brother without cause, you're guilty of judgment. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But if you look at a woman with lust, you commit adultery in your heart. You, he says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And then I think of like Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah sees God in the temple and he's like dumbstruck, right? And when you see God's holiness, next slide, it shines a light on yourself. And you see your own sin more clearly. If you put a spotlight on yourself, you're going to look, it's not flattering. That's why at seven o'clock at every restaurant, they dim the lights a little bit because your date, every date looks great in candlelight, right? I don't you know, that's, I hope that's not mean, but as spotlights are not flattering, right? So God's holiness spotlights on us and what happens to you maybe personally, by the way, other verses, Isaiah, certainly holy. What does he say when he sees God? in the temple yeah you know i'm a man of unclean lips he thinks he's gonna die peter in the boat when jesus throws the net over and catches all these fish peter falls to his knees and says away from me i'm a sinful man he doesn't say all oh, right god's with us in the boat it's terrifying to have a holy god shine on you that by itself would lead to despair for me my, my experience is i I was, I was doing, like, I was on drugs when I became a Christian. This was like two months ago. Um, I'm kidding. It was in 1992. Okay, I, I quit a lot of those gross, destructive sins over the course of the next year. I looked a lot more holy from the outside, but internally I realized I felt more sinful because I, I, I started discovering I do good things for the wrong reasons. And that light, can lead to despair that that difference can lead to despair but what happens is at each stage you come to realize that you were never that good god was never that small and his grace was never that small and you become more and more amazed by his grace god graciously reminds you that his grace is still amazing and the gospel is not just an admission into god's team it it needs to be worked into every nook and cranny of your life and one easy way to, uh, to say this, and this is ripped off from Tim Keller, who probably ripped it off from someone else, is the gospel is realizing I'm more sinful than I ever dared imagine, and I'm more loved than I ever dared hope. 
simultaneously. And when you, when you, when your walk with Christ looks like this, you become non-judgmental toward others. What did Paul say in 1 Timothy 1.15? Uh, Christ came to die for sinners of whom I am the foremost. He, he considered himself the chief of sinners. Was he really the worst guy? Well, according, I, I don't think Paul was just speaking in hyperbole. I think he saw that much of God to realize I should be somewhere very different than I am in my heart. But he, he loves you more than you can imagine. So I mean, let me just apply this in a few different ways um, my goal is to be kind of specific like Andrew was with, you know, intersecting from where you live. Because this is good theoretically, but what does it look like in just practice? Let's say you struggle with anger, irritability, impatience with the kids. Um, how do you get rid of that? Well, you can try harder to be more patient. You can try harder to just not get angry. Has anybody ever tried that? How well does that work for you? Does anybody get angrier because you don't successfully get more patient? And just, it's just, it's effort mixed with this little desperation and discouragement. Try that on for making peace in your heart. <laughs> Doesn't work, right? Instead, you can say, you know what, God? I am needing to feel patient and I, I want to be patient but the truth is I'm much worse than I thought this anger that's coming out of me reveals that I'm, I'm much more of a sinner than I thought if you would go back one slide I'm going to refer to it this is and there's something in me that makes there must be something I'm saying is more important than obeying and loving you like getting the kids to, to bed and just going no you can't have another drink of water go to bed you know you just you just what is it that you're valuing is it godliness no, it's like, I want me time. I want to go watch parks and just veg. And if comfort is more important to you than honoring God, you confess that. If it's, I want my neighbors to think that we have such great kids, then it's other people. I mean, it could be a, a million different things you're valuing more than God. But in a sense, you confess the anger that's there and say, thank you for your forgiveness. Because God isn't holding out his love. He saw he sees the sin that is feeding into your sin. He sees the heart behind it. He's already died for it. Jesus has already died for that. And so it's the gospel that says, you, you still love me in the sin that I struggle with today. Um, escapism. I mentioned drinking or procrastination or, you know, uh, lust. What do you do with that? You could say, God, I, I, I slipped again. I, I drink too much. I, I promised to do better. Okay, do you know what promising and vowing to do better is saying to God? I'm not that bad. That was just in a little exception in my life. That was a weak moment. The real me is better than that. No, the, the, repentance would be saying, God, that was the real me. That's me. And I promise to do better is saying, I can do it. Instead of saying, I promise to do better, it should be, God, I need you. Would you change me? And he says, graciously, you, you are loved, you are forgiven, rely on me. And so as you grow in the gospel, it's going to look like more dependence, more gratitude, more joy. I'm going to give a, I just want to close with a per, my, my, like one of the biggest light bulb moments. How much time do I have? 
Um, another 25 minutes? Okay. Um, and I have got more recent examples, but I think this one is the most, I guess, powerful for me. When I was in seminary, um, I went from 1997 to 2000. And my dentures are right over here. Um, I remember uh, it was my first day of seminary going into chapel. I went to DTS. And uh, literally, Chuck Swindoll was the president then. And there was a Chuck Swindoll and a, and a professor were walking in behind me. And I overheard one of them say, well, yeah, well, if you struggle with porn, you probably shouldn't be in seminary. And I remember thinking to myself, you better nip that in the bud. Now, thank God, computer, internet, all that wasn't a big thing yet. That wasn't. But for me, I struggled occasionally. And when I say occasionally, I'm talking like, you know, once, twice, three times a year, maybe. And, um, but granted, like in my day, it was more like you had to go out of your way to find that. But that was sort of like my pet sin. And I remember thinking, well, you better nip that in the bud when I heard that, because that's a disqualifier. What ended up happening is in that season, I've never tried so hard to obey God in that struggle. In all my effort, I'm putting all my eggs into this basket of going into ministry. I felt his calling and everything. And I, so with all sincerity, was just trying to walk with God and please him. But what I found is in that same season, my girlfriend and I broke up. I thought we were going to get married. And all of a sudden, my, my future in that category looked a lot more desert-like. And I found myself very distractible. Every time I'd study at Starbucks and every time an attractive woman would look up, I'd go check her out and go back to studying. And, and I'm just trying to manage all of this. But what happened is it started to get a little worse and worse and worse and worse where I'm, I'm finding I'm obsessing over, I just need to relieve my flesh, if you will. So when I gave in eventually, I was racked with guilt, racked with guilt. And I was afraid, I couldn't, I couldn't tell anybody because that would get me kicked out. I came to a place, I remember the moment was I was buying coffee at the little convenience store right by Dallas Seminary. The guy was wearing a headdress and he was clearly not Christian because of, I don't know what religion he was, but it was something other than Christianity. And I'm wearing my coat and tie, which says seminary student. Okay, and I'm buying coffee, and there was a bunch of inappropriate magazines right by the cash register. And as he's making change with me, I'm doing this. Trying to take little mental snapshots of the covers of these magazines to drink in what I can see to just feed my heart. And in the middle of that little exchange, I felt like a weasel. And I remember a voice in my head say, what difference does it make that a man died on a cross 2,000 years ago as to whether or not you look at the covers of these magazines. We were just studying the atonement. And so it was fresh on my mind. What difference does it make? And I'm thinking, I don't know. Frankly, I don't know. The truth is, I'm surrounded by people who are going to seminary because that question means everything to them. And for me, I could piece together an answer, but not an answer that actually makes a difference as to whether or not I look at the covers of these magazines. And that question haunted me. I remember it haunted me all weekend. It was, a, it was over, it was a Friday, and it was during that weekend. That question haunted me until suddenly it liberated me. It liberated me because my mentality was, God, I'm going to go to Dallas Seminary and become a varsity Christian, and you're really going to love me. Oh, but I need to defeat this struggle with 
with porn. Then you'll really love me. And when I ask the question, what difference does it make that a man died on the cross 2,000 years ago, is this. I was treating God's love as fickle. He loves me on the days I'm doing well, but on the days I'm not, I'm JV at best, right? But Jesus, when he died on the cross for me, his love was set firmly for me. Not because of what I'm doing today, but because of what he did 2,000 years ago. Christ's heart for you was, God's heart for you was established because of what Jesus did, not because of, of what you and I do today. Amen? So, if the takeaway, beware of moralism that creeps in. Don't allow it to replace the gospel. This church does not get redundant about preaching the gospel because we need to hear it every day. We need to have it reminded. We do not simply need to try harder to obey God. Instead, we need to believe the gospel again and again, seeing Jesus crucified for you and I. And I pray that that dependence gives you joy and gratitude that leads to growth and freedom that is ours in Christ. Amen. Father, I just pray that you would work this into our hearts, uh, deepen our dependence on you, but deepen our joy and our gratitude and our love for you because you are keeping the gospel fresh in our minds and guard us against that sneaky, creepy sin of moralism. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.